Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, coming to you on Independence Day, the 4th of July. But today we are not joined by an American guest. We are joined from by a guest from jolly old England, none other than our old friend Tom Secker of InvestigatingTheTerror.com and, of course, SpyCulture.com as well. So, uh, Tom Secker, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, hi James. Good to be talking to you again, and, and thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being here, and uh, and today we have quite a lot to to bite off and chew. We're going to be talking about a brand new book that you have available uh, right now from InvestigatingTheTerror.com. People can go there, and of course, I'll put the link in the show notes if for people who are interested. Your new book is Secrets, Spies, and Seven Seven, which is, as I can attest, um, having previewed a copy, an absolutely thorough accounting of not only the holes in Seven Seven, uh, the official story, but also some of the problems in the alternative conspiracy theories that have been thro- floated around. And uh, I, 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 I understand you have your own conspiracy theory to talk about with Seven Seven. So I want to get into all of this. There's a lot to talk about. But perhaps for the first question, the obvious one that presents itself is that as we sit here narrowly eight years, to almost to the day um, in uh, after the events uh, themselves have unfolded, the question may be raised, well, what is the point of a book like this? Why do we need to, uh, to, to talk about 7-7? Why is it still relevant? It's been almost eight years. Surely we can move on by now. How would you answer that? And what do you hope that people will gain out of this book? Well, the book isn't just about 7-7 itself. Um, I suppose, I mean, take the title. It's called Secret Spies in 7-7. The 7-7 the bombings and the, the events around that are the kind of core, if you like, case study for the book. Um, but it is m- more broad than that about the kind of uh, the trajectory of the security state, uh, mostly in Britain. Um, I do talk about events in other countries as well in, and some historical event, events that also have sort of uh, continued relevance, let's say. Uh, so why does it still matter? I suppose it still matters simply because it's kind of the biggest crime that's happened in this country in, I think, my adult lifetime, or at least the biggest straightforward crime, you know, a crime of mass murder, something where there's no dispute that a massive crime has occurred here. Um, one might make the argument that the faking of intelligence for the Iraq war, which is something I get into in, in one chapter of the book, um, was a bigger crime. Um, one could make that argument, and I'm not necessarily arguing against it, but in short, it, it was a mass murder. 52 people were killed. Possibly the four others that they blamed it on were also killed on that day as part of this. So we'd be talking about 56 then. That's that's a lot of people. And while... I do accept the sort of it's time to move on to some extent. I think it's time to move on from the kind of shock and horror of this. And certainly I did not try and kind of um, interfere in any way with the grieving process of those people who were bereaved by this event. I didn't go chasing after interviews with, you know, people who were on those trains and saw people die or their relatives or anything like that. Because for them, I, I certainly accept they do just need to be left alone to move on because they've suffered something pretty horrifying and therefore there's nothing to really gain by... I I would see it more as me harassing them if I'd gone down that route. But why is it... It's still important for everyone else for the same reason it always was, that this was a massively important event psychologically and politically. Um, It was the, in some ways, the, the birthing of the war on terror in Western Europe 
some might say Madrid the year before, but they kind of screwed up the exploitation of the Madrid bombings. Whereas with 7-7, I would argue the, the uh, political and media exploitation of the event is perhaps the most significant aspect of it. And coming to terms with that and understanding that is, to a large extent, more of what the book is about than it is about the specific event itself and, and who might have killed these people. Well, let's use one of one of the things that you just mentioned there in passing as perhaps an entree into the book. And the book really is kind of divided into uh, into sections. I know it's not actually divided into sections, but mm. I, I think that part of the uh, what the book covers is uh, pointing out the flaws in the official story. And part of it is talking about some of the alternative uh, theories and where they came from and the predictive programming. Uh, turning to sort of the meat and potatoes of of what actually happened, what we know, what we what we know that we don't know, etc. When it comes to what actually took place on seven seven, you mentioned, for example, in passing, that of course we know that fifty two people did die in this act of mass murder, and presumably the or possibly the four that were blamed for the murder itself. And that might be a stunning sort of claim to make for people who are uh, are new to 7-7 Truth or have never really looked into this before, the idea that the four people who have been blamed for this bombing may not even have died on, on that day in the uh, in the places that they were alleged to have, uh, have been killed. Perhaps you can explain a little bit your reasoning behind that and what kind of evidence would lead you to, to, to doubt the official story in that count. Okay, I mean, I mean, you're right. The book is broadly divided into three sections. The first five chapters, basically, I would say, make up the first section, and they are about the inadequacies of existing investigations. Because, of course, if the invest existing investigations were adequate, uh, I wouldn't have had any reason to carry it on myself and write the book. Um, so, you know, that's, what's, that's why it's all in kind of up front. Um, my reasoning would be, well, these were blamed as suicide attacks. They, they said that these four men basically made some homemade bombs, stuck them into rucksacks, traveled to London, split up at King's Cross um, Station. Three of them supposedly got on three tube trains heading away from King's Cross and blew themselves up minutes later. The other one, for no apparent reason, hung around in London for about another hour um, and then blows himself up on a bus. That is, in essence, the official story. Uh, the most fundamental problem with this is were their bodies even found at the scenes uh, in the aftermath of these explosions? And the answer to that question is sort of yes, but in the cases where we do have the details, not for two days, not until two days later, or in Shazad Tanweer's case, two and a half days later. Um, <clears throat> and that to me is potentially the strongest argument here, that they sent around a consultant psychiatrist on the evening of July 7th, 2005 to go and visit some of these bomb scenes and basically count up the dead and do a sort of formal pronouncement of, of death for all these people. They, they certainly went to Edgware Road and Liverpool Street, which is where Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanweer are supposed to have died, um, but they didn't find either of their bodies there. They were not numbered among the dead on that evening. In Sadiq Khan's case, his body wasn't found until late morning on the 9th of July, and this is after all of the other bodies have been found, have been pronounced dead, and have actually been removed from the scene. They, it's only then that they seem to find Khan's body. Um, in Tanweer's case, it wasn't until the evening, I think, of the 9th, so two and a half days after this explosion. Um, also, when you look at the 
descriptions of where they found these bodies, and you compare that to the diagrams, <clears throat> the diagrams they produced of the explosion sites, they don't match up. In some cases, you're talking about the diagram says Sadiq Khan's body is found inside the train. The person who says that they found it says it was under the train. Things like that. Um, this whole process just kind of smacks of, <coughs> excuse me, smacks of, in, at the very least, an incredibly sloppy investigation. The sort of investigation that's so bad that if someone was sneaking in and planting evidence at these scenes, they probably wouldn't have noticed. They probably wouldn't have realised. Because um, they do genuinely seem to have been that kind of haphazard and useless at actually investigating these bomb sites. On the other end, you have the CCTV problem. Um, and I go into quite a lot of the, the CCTV issues in one chapter of the book, uh, including some new stuff about the, the Jaguar at Luton, this suspicious car parked in the Luton station car park. Um, the problem with the CCTV, in a nutshell, is that it all either breaks or is mysteriously stopped or didn't exist or was already broken. Um, 20 minutes before any of these guys actually boarded the vehicles that they are supposed to have boarded and then bombed. So there is no video of them within 20 minutes of their targets in each case. So, yeah, were they even on those vehicles? It seems pretty doubtful. Indeed. Well, I mean, you, you've just laid out a, a pretty interesting case that I, I know that anyone who is only pa uh, passingly familiar with the story of 7-7 will never have heard of before, um, including some of the details of how these bodies were identified, etc. For people who are more interested in, in the logistics and the uh, and some of these 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 points, uh, we did talk about them in, in great length in a previous conversation for GRTV under the title 7-7 and Historical Analysis, where we dissected your documentary film 7-7 Crime and Prejudice. So I would uh, point people back to those uh, that that conversation and of course the documentary itself for more of those types of details but I, I guess this raises the obvious question for people out there well uh, if if it were if it were not these bombers if it if there's at least the possibility that these 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 men were not responsible for the bombings then who could possibly be responsible and uh, and there are a lot of ways that we could go with that just discussion but uh, I think it would be most interesting for this conversation if we concentrated on three characters that have surrounded this story, although their appearance wasn't made until after the bombings, and in some cases years after, but uh, people who um, are really people of interest, person, uh, suspects of interest that we should be concentrating more of our, our critical analysis on, but even the alternative media hasn't. And uh, these are Martin McDade, someone who was formerly known as Q, who has since been identified, and uh, Juna uh, Muhammad Junaid Babar. And we have talked a little bit about Babar, but I don't believe we've talked about Martin McDade or Q in a great degree of detail in our conversations before. So perhaps you can outline who these three men are or were, at least according to the official story, and who we suspect they might actually be. Okay, I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a perfectly reasonable question. If I'm saying these guys probably didn't do it or almost certainly didn't do it because they just weren't in those locations at, that t at those times... Um, then who else could have done it? And one of the main problems with answering that question is, of course, we don't have access to the physical evidence and we don't have access to the sorts of, uh, the sorts of detailed witness accounts and what have you that one would require to try and make some determination based on the events of the day itself as to what, <clears throat> as to what really happened, right? Um, we don't have any of that. The alternative media doesn't have all that. We don't have the capacity to sort of reinvestigate it to that extent. So my answer was, 
well, okay, what's going on around this event? What's going on in the background of these four guys? Because if they didn't do it, then someone, you know, went to some extent, some quite considerable extent to try and set them up because it would have had to involve, for example, planting their bodies and lots of other sort of evidence around the place in order to incriminate them. But it would have also involved getting them to do various things in the years before 7-7 that could be used to make them look like Islamic radicals. Um, for example, Mohammed Sadiq Khan from approximately 2001 to the end of 2004 was involved in this Islamic bookshop up in Leeds called the Ikra Bookshop. And this is run by a guy called Martin McDade. Um, McDade, at least officially, at least publicly, is a white uh, convert or revert to Islam. He claims to have been a former Royal Marine and a former counter-terrorism commando in the Special Boat Service. I don't know whether that's true or not, but he certainly made these claims rather publicly and to anyone who would listen. And his story appears to be that at some point in the 1990s, he switched from being a counter-terrorism commando to being a radical Muslim um, and set up this bookshop and started running these sort of camping trips and what have you that appear to have been some sort of recruitment effort to try and sort of find disaffected young Muslims and potentially send them off to Afghanistan or something. Um, behind all of that, there is the distinct possibility that this guy was working for the British security services. And I don't say that lightly. I say that because he basically fits a profile. Um, he fits a profile very, very well. He's known to the security services since 1998, so three years before 9-11 even happens. They monitor him sporadically from 1998 until sometime in 2004. Um, these investigations and these surveillance operations on McDade never sort of, uh, they never take off. They keep finding information, but nothing's ever done about it. Either information isn't shared with, with other relevant agencies, or they don't follow up the leads that they've got, or they mysteriously fail to uncover information that you would have thought they just must have had if they were looking into this. Um, and these fall into the category of what have been termed intelligence failures. And as you know, as we've discussed at great length, the whole concept of intelligence failures when it comes to this kind of thing it just sounds very suspicious. It sounds almost like a code word for something else. Um, so, McDade is never arrested. He is under investigation for several years. He's never arrested, even though after 9-11 they're running around investigating every Muslim they can find and arresting pretty much any Muslim they think they can pin something on. They do nothing to McDade. They also do nothing to Sadiq Khan and the other people at the bookshop, except subject them to certain investigations and to some extent some surveillance. Um, even after 7-7, when McDade is being interviewed in the newspapers and what have you about all this, they still don't seem to show any interest in him. They still don't go and sort of arrest him and go and talk to him about what he knew and what he was up to. Um, so to me, to my mind, he fits the profile um, of a, a potential secret agent and his activities look much more like those of an agent provocateur than they do of a sincere and genuine radical Muslim. Well, absolutely right, and I think that uh, that becomes apparent when you when you detail all of the all of the investigations that surrounded him, and of course uh, the the fact that uh, these other seven seven bombers were picked up in the investigations of 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 him 
tangentially, but they were um, not followed up on at the time and blah, blah, blah. And of course, as you say, it creates that uh, that intelligence failure meme. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Q and uh, Muhammad Janet Babar. Okay, well, they're sort of uh, part of the other half of this story. Um, there's one chapter in the book that's devoted to McDade and the Ikra bookshop, and there's another one that's devoted to what was called Operation Crevice. And this was a uh, Metropolitan Police Special Branch and MI5, so British Security Services, operation. But it did also involve the Pakistani authorities, the Canadian authorities, and for some bizarre reason, the American authorities. But we'll get to that. Um, this was basically a huge counterterrorism operation run from um, early March 2003 to approximately the end of April 2004. Uh, um, at the end of March 2004, they basically bust the whole thing up and arrest everybody, except they don't arrest this guy Q. Um, the initial Q comes from uh, the resulting trial from this investigation. The guy is always referred to as Q at the trial. But his real name, as far as we can tell, is Mohammed Qayyum Khan. Qayyum spelt with a Q, so that's where the Q comes from. Now, he is the reason why Operation Crevice starts in the first place. He is supposedly an al-Qaeda facilitator in Britain. Um, and it is through surveillance and investigation into that guy that they discover all these other people who end up being arrested. It is also through surveillance and investigation of that guy that they come across Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanweer on several occasions as part of this overall Operation Crevice. Now, Q is <laughs> another one of these ones who was just, he, he's kind of disappeared off the radar. He was never arrested as part of Operation Crevice, and when asked about this, um, the uh, Peter Clark, who was the sort of uh, special branches counterterrorism chief cop, he was kind of saying, "Oh well, sort of we have to make these decisions based on the evidence available to us," and blah 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 blah. The BBC even asked him, "Well, was it because he was working for Special Branch or MI5?" And he sort of goes, "Oh no, no, I'm not prepared to, to to talk about that sort of speculation. I'm not prepared to discuss this guy in this interview." When he could have just said, "No," if the guy wasn't working for them, you just say, "No, he wasn't." There's no problem there because you're not lying. But the way he answered those questions very much indicates, well, okay, this guy seems to have been working for someone in the British security services at least, and my guess would be MI5. And so again, you start to wonder, is this guy's so-called al-Qaeda facilitation, his liaising with all these young Muslim men, and apparently he's the one who sent them off to Pakistan to go to this training camp being run by Junaid Babar. Um, you start to wonder, well, if he's working with the British security services rather than being an authentic radical Muslim, again, he's, is he an agent provocateur? He seems to fit the profile. Um, he seems to just sort of tick the boxes if you were going to come up with a, you know, theoretical profile of what an agent provocateur would look like, he would look like Q. Um, then at the other end, in Pakistan, you have this guy, Mohammed Janaid Babar, who's an American, who my mind has now essentially been confirmed as a spy but the official version about him is that he became a cooperator he became a department of justice fbi cooperator essentially when he returned to the u.s from pakistan at the end of march 2004 so just as sorry at the beginning of march 2004 so just as this whole operation crevice thing in britain is reaching its climax and just as they're getting ready to arrest this these guys Junaid Barbar flies back to the U.S., where he hasn't been for three years. He, went, he grew up in the U.S., went to Pakistan and ran this terrorism training camp and got involved with Al-Muhajirun Al and Al-Qaeda in Pakistan and all of this. He was there for about three years. 
Then he flies back to the United States. A couple of weeks later, everyone in Britain who's involved in all of this gets arrested, and Babar is approached by the FBI and instantly becomes a cooperator. He instantly starts giving the whole thing up and telling them everything he knows and saying, admitting all of, basically admitting to a career as an international terrorist. Um, he ends up pleading guilty to all of this, gets this laughable sentence of four and a half years, then gets released, and since then has basically not really been heard of. Um, now, the problem with the cooperator story, aside from the fact that all of the court documents from the case imply that he wasn't just a cooperator and that, in fact, he was a spy before he became a cooperator, aside from that is a comment by the head of the FBI's National Security Division, a guy called Mark Giuliano, and he said in a BBC documentary, um, I'm just trying to remember the exact words, I think he said Babar was critical and that he had the ability and access to get into groups that would not have existed without him. Now, if Babar wasn't a spy, if he wasn't an infiltrator, if he wasn't a provocateur or any of that, if all he was was a guy who spent three years sort of playing at being a terrorist and then decided to give himself up to the FBI and from then on he was either locked in a hotel room talking to the FBI or he was in prison then he didn't have any access he didn't have the ability to get into any groups he was just a cooperator he was just a guy who used to be a criminal and has now flipped so the only way that comment makes sense is in fact if Barbar was a spy for some time I'm presuming most of his time in Pakistan in the three years before he gave himself up to the FBI. So he would be a spy as well. So the pattern basically is every time Sadiq Khan is doing, is getting involved in these radical Islamic activities, he's doing so through either Martin McDade or Q, who seem to be British spies, or through Junaid Babar, who appears to be an American spy. At each point, MI5 and the other security services get information on all of this, but mysteriously fail to do anything with it, and mysteriously fail to stop Sadiq Khan from, you know, continuing down this path and continuing along this journey. Then drawing out the implications of, of this, and, and assuming that we are right, that, that, uh, that these three people are in some ways working for the, uh, the security services as agents or as agent provocateur or what have you, then would that... Uh, would that information either um, f favor or disfavor either of the hypotheses around someone like Muhammad Sadiq Khan that he was a uh, an unwitting dupe that had been radicalized, genuinely radicalized by these security service agents, or that he himself was in some way uh, tied in with these security services as well? Well, theoretically, um, could support either hypothesis, except that there isn't really much evidence that Muhammad Sadiq Khan was radicalized. There isn't much in n none of his family, none of his friends seem to have suggested this was a guy who showed any sign of increasing radicalization in the year before 7-7. Um, the Home Office has tried to, and in general, the official story has tried to kind of use his second trip to Pakistan. He went to Pakistan to go to Junaid Baba's camp in July 2003. Um, he also went to Pakistan from December to Feb uh, December 2004 to February 2005. And the official story has very much tried to show that trip, that second trip to Pakistan, as some kind of symbol of his increased radicalization and that he was preparing for this attack and blah, blah, blah. Um, the problem is they can't even get the dates that he left for Pakistan right. 
and there's nothing in his um, personnel file at the job that he was at that indicates that he was going to Pakistan for any other reason than to see some family there for some reason. I mean, the guy was ethnically Pakistani, born in this country, but, you know, his, his family's his background is, is from Pakistan. So it's not that surprising that he would go there. And that's what all of the documents in his personnel file say that indicate that that was the reason he was going there. And it doesn't seem to have... Basically, the, the story of Khan's increased radicalization, his, as I put it in the book, his sort of transformation from mild-mannered uh, schoolteacher into radical Muslim suicide bomber, there doesn't seem to have been a transformation. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of that actually happening. So while it's theoretically possible that these three guys were somehow genuinely involved in, in, in radicalizing him, in reality, I don't see that as a particularly plausible account. The other hypothesis, um, what was the other hypothesis, James? Uh, that Khan was himself actually involved with the security services in some way. Oh, yeah. To, me, to my mind, that makes more sense. That may, it, there's a distinct possibility in all of this that Khan himself was also a spy. Um, possibly without realizing that any of the others were spies. And this is something that struck me most obviously when I made a uh, kind of intelligence style link chart of all of this, showing who was connected to who and who was up to what. Um, and it struck me, firstly, none of these three guys that I th I'm pretty sure are spies, none of them ever seem to have met each other. So that's a hint at some kind of compartmentalized operation, no? Um, the other thing is, the guy who's in the middle of all of this, the guy who is in fact most implicated in all of these activities, is in fact Sadiq Khan himself. So we wonder, was Sadiq Khan recruited by the security services in order to spy on what Junaid Barbar and Q and McDade were up to, potentially? Um, we do have this same issue of intelligence failures, or so-called intelligence failures, in as much as, just as they had information on Q and McDade and Barbar, and never seemed to do anything about it, and two of those were never even arrested. Likewise, they had lots of information on Sadiq Khan, but they never seemed to do anything about it, and Sadiq Khan was never arrested. So, if one were making the argument that they were that the intelligence failures, as they call them, are actually the signs, the hallmarks of a compartmentalized black operation, that the reason for those failures were in fact that this was a deliberate way of, an, of allowing an operation to continue and allowing these people to remain on the street doing whatever it is that you've got them doing, um, then that applies to Khan just as much, if not more so, than it applies to McDade, Q and Barbar. So there's a distinct possibility Khan was actually working for the security services and was somehow, I don't know, somehow double-crossed by them. This is, I mean, it, it, it's certainly a, a reasonable hypothesis, and it does fit with a lot of the facts that we know, but it does leave some other very jarring questions. Like, for example, how are the other 7-7 seven, seven, um, alleged bombers related in all of this? For example, someone like Jermaine Lindsay, who is really quite detached from the whole scene that Muhammad Sadiq Khan was involved in, in and doesn't have as many direct links to uh, to the rest of the, the plot. How, how does someone like that become involved in that, if, given that hypothesis? Um, well, there's, there's sort of two different ways you can, we could potentially go with that. Uh, the first is that he was recruited into this by Sadiq Khan. I mean, he was friends, quite good friends with Sadiq Khan. That much is relatively well evidenced. That much is, is pretty straightforward to demonstrate. So if Khan was somehow working for the security services, then that would be one route. But you're right, Lindsay doesn't live up in Leeds. Most of this is going on 
up in Leeds or involving these three guys, Hasib Hussain, Shazad Tanweer and Sadiq Khan, that live up in Leeds. Jermaine Lindsay doesn't seem to really have anything to do with any of this to any great extent. To be honest, he just kind of comes across his background, just kind of hints at some kind of petty criminal that wasn't really up to anything of any great significance. Um, but if he wasn't recruited in some way by Khan or manipulated into this in some way by Khan, there is also the possibility of his wife, who is a uh, young lady, was, well, still is, a young lady called Samantha Luthwaite. Now, Sam Luthwaite is the daughter of a guy who served in the British military in Northern Ireland in our previous great big war on terror. terror. Um, And I do wonder, what are the odds of the daughter of someone who served in the Irish war on terror turning up in such a prominent way, you know, the wife of an alleged suicide bomber, in the modern day war on terror? I suppose it could happen, um, but it doesn't strike me as particularly likely. So there is a potential connection there, particularly when you you look at what Sam Luthwaite has been up to since 7-7 in the last couple of years, um, basically since they held those big inquests on on the deaths about the deaths of 7-7. And after that, the mainstream media kind of dropped the, the whole subject and they've only really returned to it by talking about Sam Luthwaite, who is apparently now running around East Africa. This, she's a white girl with three children. Um, I think two mixed race children and a white child. So she's rather obvious. You know, there can't be too many white women with three children running around East Africa. Um, She can't be that hard a person to find. And yet, for the last two years, maybe, she's supposedly been doing this, getting involved with Al-Shabaab, this so-called local sort of Al-Qaeda franchise terrorist group. Um, And... There's been lots of sort of hints and lots of suppositions and lots of sort of, oh, well, maybe she was involved in this sort of bombing of a bar in somewhere. And none of it really seems to add up to much. Um, And all of it kind of suggests to me some kind of intelligence operation, some kind of they're using her identity, potentially. Um, I don't think she's actually out there running around East Africa with her three kids getting involved with Islamic radicalism. Um, I think it's more that chances are she's reached some agreement with the intelligence services whereby they can use the Sam Luthwaite identity to create this entirely distracting and misleading story um, that also conveniently kind of supports the notion that Jermaine Lindsay could have been a suicide bomber because that's all the upshot of this story is. It hasn't, it's not like anyone in this country is getting arrested or prosecuted over what Al-Shabaab are doing. Um, the, the whole purpose of that story seems to just be to kind of add a little bit more to the official 7-7 legend. So there's a possibility that Sam Luthwaite was also working for the security services. I know it's starting to sound like everyone in this, in this story is a spy. Um, that's not my fault, James. <laughs> uh, it's just that a lot of them do sound like spies. Well, I, I, it certainly is. It's a hypothesis that coheres, and and when you start to look at that link chart and see the way these people are related, I mean, it certainly does make have a certain logic to it. And um, a, but it again begs that question that if these four four alleged bombers were in fact in some ways working for or with or in connection with the security services and were double crossed by those security services, framed up as you uh, as it were for these uh, these bombings, then um, the question is. Uh, where and when and how did they die or i guess did they die at all i mean is the is the insinuation that they were changed identities or something like that no because we have the dna evidence or supposedly so from their bodies so so what is the uh what is the theory of how this actually would have happened then 
Well, the implication from all of this is that, yes, they are dead. Their bodies do seem to have been found at the scenes. They just seem to have been found in places and at times that doesn't really kind of fit with the official story and certainly doesn't fit with the notion of them being, you know, witting, entirely conscious suicide bombers. Um, but no, no, it seems that they're dead. This isn't like with 9-11 where, it, you know, they released a list of names and it turned out that several of them were already dead before 9-11 and several of them seem to also still be alive. Um, so then they hastily changed some names. It's not like that. Um, these guys, as far as I can tell, they must, they must be dead and they must have died on or shortly after 7-7 in order for their bodies to be found at these scenes. Um, I suppose the hypothesis would be at some point after that CCTV system fails about 20 minutes before the tube bombings, three of them were kind of, I don't know, picked off then shoved in the back of a van i don't know what um but three of them never appear on camera after that so it seems that whatever happened to them it happened then um haseeb hussein is then shown from about 8:55, several minutes after the tube bombings he's on camera from then for about another half an hour but again about 9:25, which is 20 minutes or so before the bus bombing that he's supposed to have done all the cameras seem to stop or whatever he's just not seen on on tape after that so again presumably he would have had to have been picked up at that point um what happened to them i i really don't know in terms of the mechanics of how they were disposed of wait wait i, I, I heard I a no rumor idea. from someone who heard secondhand that perhaps they they overheard <laughs> something on the radio about an assassination in canary wharf yeah this is this is one of those things that kind of came out in the wash of the mainstream media coverage of 7-7 itself is that there was this story rumor hint whatever going around that there were suicide bombers and they were at canary wharf and they were shot by police snipers um and this has turned into a pretty grandiose and all-encompassing theory of what was going on on 7-7 that i find unconvincing and inherently implausible i find it unconvincing because the proponents of this theory and there's no point naming them because this isn't about individuals. This is just about, to be honest, intellectual integrity. But the proponents of this Canary Wharf assassination theory have never come up with a single eyewitness to anything, really, that would indicate that that was what happened. There's no one who saw any, any, you know, anyone getting shot. There's no one who saw anyone sort of running around with guns. There's, there's nothing. There's no sort of positive evidence beyond the odd blogger saying, I thought I heard this on the radio. And then when I went, actually went back and checked, because I have recordings of the radio from that morning, when they say that this thing happened on the radio and that they heard that these guys had been shot at Canary Wharf, there's nothing on the radio at that time actually describing that. So I don't know where this person, this blogger, has, has got this from. I mean, it's such kind of scant evidence around which to build a hypothesis of what happened that I kind of find it ridiculous. And also, just the whole thing's inherently implausible. If you, if you were controlling these guys to the extent that you managed to manipulate them into <clears throat> going to London that morning in, t <clears throat> in time to get there in order to supposedly carry out these bombings, why would you then just let them loose for an hour and a half and then shoot them dead on the street? That's, that's not how you carry out a black operation. The way you do it is you arrest them, you take them to some warehouse somewhere and you put a bullet in their head. You don't do it in front of everyone, because then everyone knows. It, it would just be absurd to, to think that they would do it that way. And yet, 
one of the reasons why that theory has become quite popular in the 7-7 discourse, in the 7-7 movement, uh, <laughs> is because it was predictively programmed. That, in fact, prior to 7-7, one of the repeated memes in shows concerning terrorism was terrorists being shot dead on the streets of Britain. And this isn't something that happens in this country. It isn't something that ha you know, happens with any kind of regularity, that the security services actually kill someone on the street. Um, <clears throat> so the fact that it was portrayed in lots and lots of programs before 7-7 is, to my mind, one of the reasons why, after 7-7, people hearing this rumour thought that this could be a plausible explanation, when it really isn't, to my mind, at least. It just, it just isn't. And sadly enough, shortly after 7-7, that actually did play itself out in a sick uh, perversion of, of that scenario, where, of course, mm -hmm. Jean-Charles de Menezes was shot. Um, and we still have not seen any justice for that shooting. So, um, so that's, that's an, uh, another part of the, the, the reason why I think 7-7 is still a, a gaping wound in the side of British justice. Um, but on the note of implausible theories, I, I mean, I agree completely until there, or unless there's any evidence whatsoever put forward for that Canary Wharf um, assassination theory, unless there's a shred of evidence that's provided, I think it's completely and utterly uh, uh, groundless, spaceless at this point. But um, but on the note of kind of wildly implausible theories, I will uh, I will bring up the, the uh, we should point out at this point that you have a, a new uh, YouTube video on your YouTube channel, um, the 77 Archive, uh, called Se uh, the suspiciously familiarly named 77 uh, <laughs> A Conspiracy Theory. Theory, which is which is fascinating goes through a lot of this uh, this type of material but also it, it comes to a, an interesting place that I, I was not expecting to see where you point out that for, uh, the three agents that we identified or at least potential agents that we identified before um, uh, Martin McDade uh, Q and Junaid Babar have M Q and J B as initials which could plausibly tie in with James Bond, JB, and M being the head of the secret uh, intelligence service in the James Bond universe, and Q being the gadget, uh, ex gadget maker for Bond. I find that to be as intellectually satisfying as completely implausible as any type of explanation for what's going on. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, this is just something I, I spotted um, <laughs> when I was kind of thinking about this. I mean, the Q connection I got straight away. I made that point back in when I made Seeds of Deconstruction, which is like nearly three years ago now. Um, that was my first film, for those who haven't seen it. Um, I did point out, at least visually, the connection between a guy called Q, who's probably working for MI5, and the guy in the James Bond novels who's called Q, who's working for MI6. Um, because that's kind of rather obvious. But then it struck me when I was going through some of the names of just basically names that were associated with this case. Uh, things like the official investigation, the official police investigation into 7-7 being called Operation Theseus, all of this kind of stuff. Um, the fact that the MI5 documents call these alleged bombers the Stepford Bombers. And I was just kind of thinking along these lines and, and wondering, is there some kind of sick joke going on here? Some kind of, you know, the jokes on us, spook humor, but really unpleasant spook humor. And it did just occur to me, okay, we've got these three guys, Q, well, obvious James Bond connection there. I don't think that needs to really be explained. You've got Martin McDade, who has the initials MM, which is the same as... Admiral Miles Messevy, who is the M character in the original James Bond novels, 
so he's got the same initials as the head of MI6 in the Bond stories. And you've got Janae Barbar, whose initials are JB, James Bond. Now, yeah, I'm willing to accept it's not the kind of argument you could take into a courtroom. Um, but it is the kind of argument that I think does add another dimension to this. It does, it does hint at something here, because if we are hypothesizing, as I do in that video... And you can be happy that hardly anyone's watched that video. So my, my <laughs> well, shameless, yes, shameless I take much satisfaction in that. You know, clearly not has been completely ineffective. Um, but anyway, if we are hypothesizing, as I do in the video, that MI5 set up these four men, isn't it, is it not the sort of sick thing that spooks do is to set up these men using three men with the same initials as characters from the most famous British spy story of all time? Um, that might, again, seem a little thin on its face, but when you look into just the extent to which these security services are, to be honest, quite egotistical, they're quite concerned with their public image. Um, in fact, they're very concerned with their public image, and they are very into self-referential spook culture and spook humor. So the, it just struck me as a potential example of that. I'm not making the case that those guys were chosen or those names were chosen specifically for that reason. It's just one of those little things that you notice that you think, yeah, that could hint at that kind of mentality. Well, as I say, it's it's intellectually satisfying, but uh, but you will forgive me for not being convinced. However, I, I think that the uh, the focus on the name of the operation, Operation Theseus, is extremely interesting, and you uh, you explain that in a very interesting way. I'll leave that for for people to to read the book itself um, for more information on that and to discover what the meaning of the uh, the cover of the the book, the cover image is. And I think you did a quite a good job with that. But let's pick up on another aspect of what you just mentioned there, which is the Stepford Bombers, which is what these these men were referred to as in in official MI5 documents which is a bizarre reference and that again you detail in the 77 conspiracy theory video perhaps you can tell us about stepford bombers and where this term must come from presumably um well the only place it can come from is is from the, the 1970s sort of i suppose it's kind of feminist dystopian story the stepford wives which is this uh, it was a novel that then became a film and both the novel and the film are, are thoroughly worth your time <clears throat> um in particular, I, I love that film. I find it absolutely terrifying. Uh, and it's essentially a story of a, a family who moved to small town, white picket fence, suburban America. And they discover that there is a sort of secret society of, of men in this town who are converting their wives into robots or cyborgs of some kind in order to make them more... Uh, ideally submissive and subservient, the sort of, uh, you know, the model wife in, in a kind of sick way. Um, not that you would actually want, any serious man would actually want his wife to be like that, but in keeping with the whole white picket fence, idealized, romanticized version of what married life should look like, that's the sort of perfect wife, is one who is completely obedient and subservient to her husband and, and you know, looks up to him and does whatever he wants. Um, and that's what these men in this story are creating in this town. So they're basically creating robots. Um, they're creating fake people that they can control. So 
this the term Stepford, there is no place in England called Stepford or anywhere in Britain called Stepford. To my knowledge, there's nowhere in the United States called Stepford either. Um, so where does this term come from? Um, I was actually chatting about this with, with Aaron Friends a couple of months back. Um, and we came up with, it's probably a contraction of step forward. If you take forward and take out, you know, some of the letters and maybe stick in an, an apostrophe, you can get sort of forward, step forward, step forward. And so hence these wives are a step forward on the type of wife that was currently available. Um, that's probably where that title comes from. Now, it doesn't really appear in any anywhere else except for in references to that film and that book until after 7-7 when for some reason it is the code name that MI5 choose for these four guys that they say did it. They call them the Stepford Bombers. And the implication, obviously, is that they were somehow subservient to or duped by or under the orders or thrall or control of MI5. Because otherwise, why call them that? They've never been to a place called Stepford because there is no place for, called Stepford for them to have been to. Um, that, it has no relevance to the case. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing in their background that indicated they were big fans of the film or, or, or that it played a role in their radicalization or anything like that. You know, it, it, there really is no other connotation for that term being used in that way. Um, so to be, again, to be fair, though, um, it doesn't logically well, follow that they're implying that they were controlled by MI5, just that they were controlled. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But it's MI5 naming them that. So I would say the implication is it's the person who gives them that name who's suggesting they're in control of them. Um, but no, OK, I suppose it's, it's always possible they could be, have been robotically controlled, not literally robotically, um, controlled by someone else. Yeah, okay. By Al-Qaeda. <laughs> um, well, it, yeah, but it is, a, it is a fascinating little thing. And it's always interesting to see the terminology that they give these things, because it does, it does I think, sometimes say more about, uh, about these investigations than they perhaps mean to. Um, uh, let's turn to a, another aspect of what you cover in this book, which is the, uh, the predictive programming that preceded and then, uh, and then followed also the 7-7 uh, the bombing itself and, and really colored people's perception of the bombing. And we've talked again about this in, in several of our conversations before, and you've talked about this in great detail with uh, Aaron Franz of uh, theageoftransitions.com so I'll direct people over to some of our previous conversations and some of those conversations with Aaron Franz for more on this subject but there was one particular piece of this that you were covering in in the book that I found particularly interesting which is the the, the name the title of pseudo media pseudo journalism to refer to a certain type of journalism that surrounded um, fictional slash quasi-factual uh, programs meant to to talk about uh, terrorist bombings. So let's talk a little bit about pseudo-media and what this term really indicates. Okay, well, this is, this is the other half of the predictive programming story. Um, yeah, there's no point really re reiterating everything we've previously discussed on that. So, yeah, go, if you're interested in the fictional television shows, the stuff that was put out on television for, for the public, for all of us, uh, in the... Uh, years immediately preceding and immediately following 7-7. We'll go back to our previous conversations and all of that, you get all that. But the other part of the preconditioning process, to my mind, for this attack, was in this series of training exercises that were being run, um, again, in the years between 9-11 and 7-7. And there is this curious thing where by the same memes that were turning up in popular entertainment shows 
predicting future terrorist attacks were also the same memes that turned up in these training exercises, these officially sanctioned, officially, you know, government-run training exercises. Um, one exercise in particular that I focused in on and tried to provide as much detail, really, as I could find on was called Atlantic Blue. And this was a international exercise being run in April 2005, so whatever, three, four months before 7-7. Um, it was being run in this country, in the UK, and in Canada, and in the United States, under different names. In Canada, it was called Triple Play, and in the United States, it was called Top Off 3. Um, and it, it was a disaster response, a crisis response training exercise. Um, in the US, they and in Canada, to my memory, they actually had people running around responding to staged events on the ground. You know, they'd fake a bombing and then have some guys running in, suited and booted, to actually potentially pretend to deal with all of this. In the UK, it was, a, it was a locked room, it was a command post thing, involving a couple of thousand people, involving a lot of people, but there weren't, there wasn't anyone actually running around on the ground physically responding to this. It was all being done in offices. Um, and the scenario for the attack that they dreamed up three, four months before 7-7 was bombings on the tube and buses in London. Um, so exactly what happens on 7-7. And I think even in Atlantic Blue, they were bombings that coincided with a major international summit, just like on 7-7, when you may remember all of the world leaders who were over here in this country were at the opposite end of the country. They were up in Scotland for the G8, convenient. Um, so this exercise predicts 7-7 in all sorts of different ways. But the key aspect of it that, that you brought up of pseudo-media was that this thing was running for several days straight. I think it was running for a whole week. Um, and they, as part of the exercise planning, they created fake media, fake news coverage of the events that they were supposedly responding to and fed it to exercise participants in order to gauge their response, in order to, whatever, test their reaction to a particular bit of information as opposed to something else. Um, and when I say fake news, I mean the whole kit and caboodle. Um, they, they, in the United States version of this, which is the only one I've been able to actually find any video from. Um, they, they got a real news anchor. They had real, you know, experts, in inverted commas, coming on to talk about the same things that they would talk about on the real news. Uh, but they were talking about an entirely fictional scenario that hadn't actually happened. But the whole thing looked like real news. Um, and it had that sort of... It was sitting in that strange middle ground between fact and fiction because you've got real people talking about a fictional hypothetical scenario but talking about it in the exact same way as they might be on the real news tomorrow talking about a real scenario. So how, what it must have been like to be sat in a room watching this stuff and being trying to respond to it as though it were real. I mean, that's a very curious psychological position to put people in. So I was trying to find, find out more about this. I was trying to find out more about what was the purpose of this pseudo-media? Why were they going to such lengths to, to create, you know, several days of rolling news coverage? That's quite a, a big effort. That's going you know, to cost quite a lot of money and, you know, take a lot of time to do. Um, so why did they bother? And I found in this remarkable, uh, completely unclassified, but internal home office publication called CBRN News which is like, it's a title that makes me cringe, it really does. Um, I found 
them detailing some of these exercises. And so I got the issue that was on, on the Atlantic Blue exercise. And hey, presto, there's an interview in it with one of the people who was making this pseudo-media, uh, who was involved in you know updating the weather forecasts on the websites and the news bulletins on the websites that these people were going to in order to get information about this, this fake scenario. Um, and they said quite explicitly, and this is a document I include in the back of the book, um, both the e-version and the paperback version have a, have a copy of this document in it. He said, the purpose of this fake news, this pseudo-media, was to drive player action. It was to try and get them to respond to this scenario in a particular way by feeding them certain information. Now, doesn't that sound just like predictive programming, but not predictive programming for the masses, predictive programming for the very officials that would, three, four months down the line, be responding to a real bombing and a real crisis? Absolutely. Um, it's just, it's just mind boggling. Uh, forgive my, forgive my ignorance here, but does CBRN have any other possible connotation than chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear weapons? No, no, that is very much, that's the title of the, of the publication. They're quite open about that. They just use that as their abbreviation on the front cover. That's what it means. That's uh, that's ridiculous in and of itself, but uh, but no, absolutely fascinating to uh, to see this document, to see this discussion of pseudo media. I mean, it's so, uh, and perhaps people are familiar with it. Um, uh, some people might have seen the fake uh, anthrax news broadcasts that were used in in previous American uh, uh, exercises. Uh, I can't remember the name of the one. I think in two thousand two thousand one, slightly before nine eleven. Um, but absolutely, just some of this is so bizarre and so creepy and uh, very much uh, War of the Worlds-esque. Um, and it does, I mean, it raises so many interesting questions and, and, uh, and possibilities, and which, again, let's stress, are gone, uh, which you do go into in such great detail in the book itself. Um, once again, Secret Spies and 7-7 available from InvestigatingTheTerror.com. Tom, there's so much more that we could talk about, but uh, I think we should have to... Well, we will have to bring this conversation to a close at some point, but perhaps before we do, why don't we talk about the inevitable conclusion of a book like this and a, a talk like this, which is the conclusion of, well, what what do we do with this? Where where to from now? Um, and as we do approach the eighth anniversary of, of the 7-7 bombings, uh, perhaps you can give us a, a, a take on what the, the mood in Britain is at this point. Is this something that's really that will receive anything more than a passing mention in the newspapers, et cetera, on the day itself? Or is there some, is there a sense that there is any sort of momentum to, towards actually an, a real investigation into what actually happened? Uh, no, no, I can tell you rather disappointingly that the mood in this country is that most people don't really care. Um, the mainstream media will probably cover the anniversary, but only in a sort of fleeting way, reiterating the official story, suicide bombers, blah, blah, usual sort of thing. Um, there isn't much of a 7-7 a movement left anymore, um, to be brutally honest. I'm glad to say that hasn't stopped people from buying the book. The book's actually sold moderately well so far, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. And I'm very grateful to every single person who, who's, who's bought a copy of it or done anything to you know, help promote this book. I really am. Um, but I, I also have to face the reality that an awful lot of people in this country just don't care and that the chances of gaining a real investigation into the events of 7-7 itself are slim to none. What can be done is... I suppose what can be done is, is to some extent what I did 
with the book is to say, well, the event itself, we might never find who actually planted those bombs on those, those trains and that bus. Um, I think catching them is probably never going to happen. And I never really set out with the idea thinking that that was particularly plausible or that was an achievable aim. My aim was more to show, you know, what's, what's going on around this attack? What are the, the methods both in terms of predictive programming, these exercise simulations, all this sort of different preconditioning stuff. Uh, also the media manipulation after the event in terms of both news coverage and fictional TV shows and what have you. But ultimately, perhaps the most important thing, the whole intelligence failures aspect of this and the whole how is it that MI5 could actually do this sort of thing. I use MI5 in a broad sense. Um, all of those, all of that's still relevant because all of that's still going on. Predictive programming is still going on. MI5 using agent provocateurs is still going on and other sorts of secret agents. The setting up of, you know, not just Muslims but quite a lot of other people as well as so-called terrorists is still going on. Um, all of those are still relevant. All of those topics are still relevant. And understanding 7-7 now that we have all of this information about it and now that we can actually sort of put it all together in this kind of a way that I've tried to in the book, um, it can teach us an awful lot about how to respond to the, the ongoing situation, how to respond to that murder in Woolwich a few weeks back, which, you know, everyone went crazy about, even though it was just one murder. Um, things like that. You can have, if you have a, a better understanding of 7-7 um, and whatever other events single individual day events that you, you might want to focus your time on, then you, you understand the trends and the trajectories of all of these things much better. Um, so that's what I think can still be accomplished, is getting people to understand this as part of our part of the history of our security services, part of the, the ongoing behavior of our security services and of the security state in general. Um, catching the people that did it, yeah, okay, probably not going to happen. Well, it's a, it's a bleak assessment, but I, I have to agree. I think that the political momentum behind this and the ability to, to for the, uh, the, the people at this point to, to really open that investigation in that way is uh, certainly scant at best. But at the very least, we can work towards the, uh, the delegitimization of these so-called security services and uh, the real opening of the question of what they're actually doing in uh, society. And I don't think that providing security is one of those answers that I would provide. But at any rate, I will let people make up their own mind, and to do so, I would wholeheartedly suggest they get a copy, Secret Spies and 7-7, available at investigatingtheterror.com. Tom Segger also, of course, available at spyculture.com, uh, a sort of spin-off website looking at uh, spies in culture and uh, some of the predictive programming, etc., that surround these types of uh, these types of issues. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Tom Secker, I think we're going to leave it there. So thank you once again for your time. Thank you, James. It's been great talking to you about this.